Hello, I'm Stephanie Luong. Welcome to Surface Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chinwag the people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addict to being underwater. During the surface time today, I sat down with my friend Johnny Ma, who was visiting Singapore en route to London. We first met through Project X-Team, where we did all sorts of adventurous activities like rock climbing, scuba diving. Over the years, we kind of adopt one another as the unofficial extended family members. This is one of the occasions where we got to have this sibling-like chat about life in general. But first, we need to set the tone clear on one thing. Well, so it doesn't look good, right? Talking about swearing, we should talk about We should talk about swearing. <laughs> yes. Oh, 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 yeah, it's up to you. It's because up to you. we both are Yes. So I think the swearing habit between the uh, two sides of uh, Atlantic is quite different. Yeah, different. Like in the States, it's seen as it's frowned upon. Massively. Yeah. And in England, it's, yeah, it's part of your vocabulary, and especially with your friends. Like no one gives a shit. And you know when to do it. But on the whole, when you're a friend, it's like, swear whenever. Yeah. For emphasis. I call it an expulsion of emotion. Yeah. Fucking amazing. And then it's always really funny. But then sometimes, especially how things are and you look out the window, world's on fires. Yeah, being polite is not really that big a deal anymore. No, and I think sometimes when you're using this swearing word, it really depends on the circumstances. Most of the time, it's not that you're swearing at the person as an expression of personal attack. It's more that you just expressing a moment of BS. Yeah, this is bullshit. Like someone needs to say, no, this is fucking shit. You don't need a sugarcoat anything. Yeah, let's just um, be more candid. Mm, mm. Okay, anyway. Jordan, thank mm. you for joining me. <laughs> pleasure, pleasure. Okay, so we digress. Get back to the diving because mm. the podcast is about surface type. Yeah. Confessions of a diving junkie. I'm going to preempt this for the audience that mm. you're not a diving junkie per se. No. But you are a diver. Yes. So where was your last memorable dive? Oh. So my last memorable dive was probably with my students. My school does the IB. And part of IB, we have a thing called Hannah uh, Creativity Activity Service. A really good friend of mine called uh, Roshan. He's the CAS director. So if I get this wrong, he's going to be pissed off. Free to write to Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we look forward to your comments. And no, and we took the kids out. So as part of their learning, besides academic stuff, they actually all got diving inserted when they were on their CAS trip. And so when they were back, we were going to use that to do some cleanup programs where we were going to dive in a certain spot and each of the teachers who are also divers would take two students with them and we would go around basically clean up, sea clean up. And it was fun with the kids. It was reminding them like, oh, do you know what you need to do? Did you check all your equipment and stuff? And then going down and everybody is together, making sure that they're keeping track because at the end of the day, like they got certain, but when was the last time they diving together as a pair and being aware of each other? So, oh, it was fun. But yeah, we didn't pick up that much rubbish because it's like one bottle and it's been there for so long. There's actually stuff living in there. So it's like, maybe we shouldn't pick it up. Like, maybe just leave it as it is. But no one was a fun experience. Everybody got into the water. It was more like a day out with all the students more than a, oh, we successfully cleaned up this area of the dive site. And so the idea was that not only would we keep track of the rubbish we picked up, how much rubbish we picked up, what kind of rubbish we picked up, we were also meant to be testing 
quality of the water. We had this little thing which could trap the water and, and at the depth that we were diving as all part of the project. And that was pretty cool. It gave it more significance for the students besides the environmental cleanup side. So that was good. I like the, uh, the whole activity involving diving because then when the children, how old are they? What's the age group? 16, 17, I think. Okay. So they've learned pretty much all the basic science, like biology, mm. chemistry, physics, stuff. Yeah. By, by that age anyway. So I think you as a teacher, but me as a diving instructor and having taught junior and scuba diver, mm. I think it's actually quite a good, a fun way to introduce them the practical aspects of science. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, yeah. The problem with nearly all sciences is that the sort of like, how do you relate to it? How do you make it into the real world? That practical aspect of all of those things. So it's a great example. It's not all going into any sort of woodland area, collecting samples, collecting data, observing animals. You know, this is actually, it's a great example. And it requires more personal responsibility because you've got so much equipment with you. And while we didn't dive that deep, I think it mostly was seven to 10 meters. wasn't, you still need to know what you're doing. Like you could still, you're not going to fuck up too badly, but you still got to be careful. Yeah. And we made sure we had the little buoy saying like, you know, people are diving around here. There was not a time when people were going on speedboats and doing wakeboarding or anything. So we were like, we were safe, but still we wanted to remind the kids like, don't just, you need to, when you're going back to the surface, make sure to breathe out, like reminding them all the things like you still need to be careful. And we still checked all of their equipment before they put it on. But in terms of having that hands-on experience of, oh, this is what it would be looking No, It's been great. It's a really good sort of way to make it more real. Yeah. Yeah. For me, pressure, for instance, that when they, when we ascend, you need to exhale mm. and then dump air from your BCD mm -hmm. and usual stuff. And they think in the normal classroom, we learn in physics, you, you force yourself to remember yeah. the yeah. pressure yeah. and how yeah. the expanders yeah. get closer to the surface. But then when you are a diver, your body is physically experiencing it. And I think for the, for students, the teenagers or even younger, it's just really anchor that memory yeah. through experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a lot of, yeah, not sounding like too much of a teacher, but it's a lesson in itself. And this is a very IB speak. Like right now I'm, it's hilarious. It's something we ever see. It, no, 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 true. But it's like, like, what do I, so the, one of the really common things that we always say is lifelong learners. And I'm sure like any of your listeners who are like teachers be like, oh, for fuck's sake, like you're listening to that again and groaning. But yeah, it's a lot of that. And having to remind the students of that, but then to be fair, whether you're students or not, how often are we also self-aware of all experiential learning? Like how often are we aware of, oh, this is a learning moment, teaching moment and appreciating in everyday life, let alone just for diving, but more so. Since you got to be careful. Yeah. Secure. Think that you being a teacher mm. and then your target audience mm. in the teaching career, the teenagers, mm. yeah. but let's take that into the adult environment where we learn through experiences because mm. after we left school, really everything else is what the life has taught us. And so I'm just curious that you mentioned experiential learning, had there been any like particular experiential learnings that experience you've been to and that you felt that was mm. almost life-changing for you. Uh, I think Fleming's probably the major thing that 
changed me the most. I've had such a positive experience majority wise from learning it to getting better at it, to meeting like-minded people. Yeah. So for me, climbing and continue to doing it was one of the most like profound experiences I've had. How did you get into it in the first place? Hilariously from just walking past a climbing wall. Hilariously because, so there is a massive sports center near where I used to live in London. And they asked this massive glass window and it showed like this massive climbing. And throughout university, I kept on passing in. I said, oh, one of these days I'll do it. And then when I was in my master's, I thought, why not? And so I went in, tried it out, was absolutely shitted. And then, okay, I've done it. I've tried it. Don't have to, I can say that I've done it rather than complaining. But then for some reason or another, kind of decided, you know what? Well, don't just, oh, you tried it, it's hard and you're not going to do it. Like, try and keep at it. And I did. And I just had a really nice experience. The people I met have always been good, very positive, both in support and teaching. And both personally, physically, you're really pushing yourself to do things you've never done before, trying moves which are scary. And knowing that if you're not careful, you will fall and you will, you can hurt yourself. But obviously not to the point where it's danger to your life, but definitely I, yeah, I don't think I would be the same person I am now if I didn't pick up. So obviously we met through the climbing mm. first and then everybody goes through different phases. So you start as a beginner and then the beginner's way of tackling the climb route is very different from the more advanced and be taking you back to the time how you started and how you're climbing now, what are the evolutions that's have taken place. Definitely from my experience, and in no way I feel like this is going to be the same with other climbers. I became more lazy because when you're beginning, you're like over gripping everything. Your forearms are completely like tense because also like you're not quite sure what you can or cannot do. You're over uh, compensating you know, for your balancing, for your so everything is oh. And then as you get better and better, you realize, oh, you're trying to conserve as much energy as you can. So you're trying to be in my mind. As lazy as I can, whereas like, I don't want to, I don't want to overdo anything. I want to be able to still have enough strength for the hard parts, the crux. I'm not going to use up all my energy before. Yeah. Being more lazy is the wrong word. It's like, how do I still do what I need to do, but using the least amount of energy resources, so on and so forth. Like it's, it's like being, I guess it's like one side you can call it lazy, the other side you can call it being efficient. Okay, listen, my personal motto mm. is minimum effort and maximum effect. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it, basically. It is pretty much that, where you're just trying to, but also just being really aware of it, that you are trying to be more efficient at everything that you do. And I think with climbing, it's one of the few sports which, because you are in this really dangerous position and so high up, you're constantly reminded that you need to be aware of that. You're doing these moves as well as you can. But then I find the same with diving. Definitely working in buoyancy, definitely work on my breathing. I remember every time that when I dive, the first dive, all that stuff you remember goes out the window and then it's only half an hour. You're like, I only have this much of the tank left. How did that happen? We weren't down for so long and nor are we going that deep. I think that was the thing that kind of annoyed me a little bit when I first got back into it is I don't know why I'm already using so much air. Besides the personal enjoyment of diving and like working with the students and stuff, like at a personal level, it's the technical side of it is I am not controlling my breathing as well as I should be. You forget these things. You forget, oh yeah. And then after that kind of first dive, you're reminded and you just been conscious and you get better. I think in diving, <laughs> if you're a new diver, if you get down to the water, 
you shake the water a lot that you pick yeah, it up. Yeah. And then you would come out. And that's part of the reason why you use that so fast because when you kick so fast, you need more oxygen. You build up more carbon dioxide in your body. So that's a natural physical thing. When you become more proficient in diving, like you say, what you did in climbing, you become lazy. You kick a lot less. Yeah. yeah. And, then you, a, yeah. and then once you master the art of that, knowing how to get into the neutral buoyancy mm. and they stay there because that's where you can actually maximize the usage of your energy. Mm. So I think both diving and climbing have that, the evolution that we've gone through mm. have that. And use those as an analogy we look at life. They're quite similar, right? As the individual, the human, the it, life yeah. philosophy was. It's easier, better. It shouldn't be more stressful. It should be less stressful because you're better at it. Mm. You're going to know how to navigate the difficult parts and you know how you're going to deal with it. We should be. Yeah. Is it kind of part of aging? So we know each other long enough so we can talk about that. <laughs> we're not saying that we're not fit, but we're not as fit as the way we were. I can blame this on pandemic, pandemic body. That's my excuse. That's definitely my excuse. I'm sticking with that. Yeah. But I think that even in our perception of lives, the perspective do change as well over time as we become more comfortable with what we can do, more get to know ourselves better, our craft, mm. that confidence in time. Yes. The only double-edged part of that is also like, when we were younger, we were more willing to put ourselves outside of our comfort zone. And, but how often do we still do that now that we're older? I think the people who are climbers and divers, it's a little bit different. We're already doing a thing not many people do. We're already putting, we're already doing a thing that requires us to think like that quite often. Because when you're climbing higher or you're diving deeper, okay, it's a, it's now circumstances slightly change and you need to prepare for that. So I think it's a constant thing. And I think it's a little bit easy. I'm not saying oh, only climbers and divers. I'm just saying because of that constant shift of what's safe and us having to learn new skills so that we can be safe. I don't think we see it as comfort and oh, outside of comfort zones. It's more, it's just a thing you learn. It's an addiction. I would say it's a drive more than an addiction. <laughs> addiction would say that it is affecting your normal. I would say it's more like, it's a good drive. It's a good reminder. It's a good sort of stops you from being complacent. Stops you from staying still and thinking like, oh, things are going to be fine and things are going to be the same. As with the world right now, things are constantly changing. It's in what? Yes. Have you seen that documentary? Free solo. Yes. That is a super advanced version of rock climbing, mm -hmm. meaning zero rope. Free climbing. Yeah. I always forget his first name. It's really terrible because I'm sure like your, the climbers audience is like, oh God, I can't believe you've gone. But I always mix him with Tom Holland, which is, no, that's the actor. Honor, oh God. Uh, this will come in. Alex Hol Holland. Honold. 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 Not yeah. Holland. Yeah. Honold. Please don't writing. Yeah, please. Uh, yeah. I don't read the comments. Yeah. Anyway. It's an impressive documentary to start mm. with. Obviously for us, we're seeing what the climbers doing. So when you were watching that, what was going in your mind? So here's the really surprising thing. I watched Dawn Wall before I watched Free Solo. They're both about Yellowstone and it's about, but they're different routes. And I think maybe because I watched Dawn Wall before I watched Free Solo, so that's why the impact of Free Solo was a little less. I think it's only when I was watching the making of free solo and it involved a lot of the planning and a lot of what it would be like for the people making the film where the possibility of him falling is a tangible risk it's a possible risk and there were sections where they were saying how oh, this is for him the crux 
of which I've seen the clips and the people who are filming it, they have it at that spot, but they can't watch him because it's such a dangerous part. And they like, because imagine that if, and a lot of these were friends of his, whereby do you want to catch the moment when, so that for me, when I was watching the making of that really pulled that then it hit home, then it hit home for me. That was much more effective. The way that Alex is in, I don't know why I'm using his first name as if I know him. It's interesting. I think he did like a CAT scan or an MRI or something. And we're trying to see, is it like actually a physiological thing that he's not afraid? And the fact that they were saying how he was more anxious about talking to people. And that's why he doesn't really climb with people. He'd rather climb by himself. Which is also really interesting. That like the anxiety of meeting other people was so extreme. He'd rather climb one of those dangerous walls in the whole of Yellowstone by himself. I don't know whether that's true, but I do like that idea. Can we just be cheeky here? Yeah, I've forgotten what the point was though. What was going through your mind? At the time that I was watching it, it was more of recognition of how amazing that is, like a physical feat of doing it. Obviously the mental focus you needed to have in order to not think about, oh, if I fall, I'm going to die. The physical aspect of it, because it's not an easy climb by any means. And he's completing it in one go. I think it's more of a recognition of like, we are in being able to record, document and fully show what we're capable of. And it's now for our generation, maybe like these different things that people can do, like we can free solo one of the hardest routes on Yellowstone. And I'm in terrible with numbers. I've forgotten like fit it, but it's not short either. Yeah. I felt like it's definitely inspirational is the wrong word because it's more like recognition of that's hardcore. It's like amongst trail runners or ultra marathoners and being able to recognize a good time in whether it's the Gobi Desert Challenge or I think the one in Hong Kong is the 4UTC. So basically it's all the, like Hong Kong trail, McLehose, like all the trails together. You have to do it in sugar, four days, three days, three days. Yeah. And, uh, and there's actually no money in it. There's very little money in it. It's more the recognition of it, that you are doing one of the hardest ultra marathons. And I like the fact that it does put Hong Kong a little bit on the map for ultra marathon type of races. And but at the same time, I feel like knowing that. I'm not going to be doing Yellowstone anytime soon, but it's knowing that, but you could. I think the other thing is he is doing the world's most dangerous sport effectively. Yeah. And I can resonate with your comment about is a recognition of what any human, once you're willing, committed to it, that what you can achieve mm. and what he's worth really just demonstrating the kind of effort that needs to go in. Okay. Maybe the catch scan shows that he sadly have the above average person's lack of fear, but I don't think he has no fear. Yes. I think he yes. just presents it yes. from way. Yes. Agree. And I think on top of that, it's not about stubbornness to want to complete. Mm. I think it's the vanity thing. Mm, mm, and the thing is about the stamina. So it's all mm. your mindset is quite no. important. Absolutely. I think when you have that vanity part, when you have that sort of, then that's when you screw. That's when, again, no shit, it's very nice. It's like when you believe in your own bullshit. Yeah. You start thinking like, oh, I am that good. It's not, now you're going to fuck up. It's usually when, because if you don't plan for the time, but if you think that you're infallible, yeah, you're going to fuck up. You should be reminded that, you know what? You're just as human. And if the one time you don't check your equipment, the one time you think like it's mm -hmm. going to be okay, that's usually the time. Caught by it. And that's all you, all you need one accident for mm -hmm. all the stuff that we do. You only need one time 
O-rings come off or like it's worn down. Your BCD doesn't really inflate. Like you only need all catastrophic failure with equipment where your carabine, you didn't close the gate. You just need one. Yeah. The other aspects of it that really got me thinking about it is that how do you transfer that? How do you blend that in your teaching with your students? The younger, the future generation, the future leaders of the world. That's a good question. So how do I blend like the aspects of climbing and diving or like lessons from that into my teaching? Yeah, because there's carers with you, right? Yeah. So let me rephrase it. Because you have all these experiences they do in their dangerous sports and practice the safety protocols, right? So you are able to step outside the comfort zone and make that as a part of your regular thing. And because you have that kind of attitude towards life, and that will also carry with you, or you will carry that with you when you interact with everyone else. But I think particularly in the field of teaching, that makes you quite a different teacher. Not putting anyone else down, what's your uniqueness being a teacher? Ooh, I think definitely, and this is again, like you said, just for me, not putting anybody there. I think it's more admission that I'm making mistakes. I think it's more just appreciating that you're human and then sure you go climbing, you go diving and it's a lot of, and you can make mistakes and you have to be responsible. You have to be careful. You have to, and also like you're checking on your own equipment, right? It's that kind of like at the end, ultimately at the end of the day, you are responsible for yourself. No one else. If you fuck up, it's on you. Which is why on a separate note, I'm terrified of driving. I don't trust other people. I'm like a very defensive driver. I doesn't trust all these people. Yeah. That's why I'm afraid of driving more than I am of climbing and diving purely because it's like, if, if the equipment doesn't work, like you should have checked everything and oh, but it's more or less fine. And I think the bicycle is okay for you as well. But yes. But then I remember trying out mountain biking with Andy and Ian and oh, the number of times I'm just freaking eating the pavement from falling. Luckily not head over handlebars, not that bad. But definitely, no, I was shit at mountain biking. I mean, it was <laughs> so like, yeah, it was fun. I tried it, definitely covered in the scripts and bleeding. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is not something I want to continue on. Diving's fine. Climbing is fine. And I've had bad falls and touch wood never like broken anything. But yeah, mountain biking, no. Okay, we digress. Go back to the students. Oh, sorry about the students. <laughs> yes, get personal responsibility. I think that is like, at the end of the day, you've got yourself and no one else. I don't mean that in a depressing sort of way. I just want to instill that sort of like, you're responsible for your own safety. Anything that's good and bad and stuff, it's on you. Sure. There's a certain amount of, oh, what if somebody does this to you? Your parents are like, yeah, sure. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be doing it, whether it's comfort zone or not, dangerous or not, like you're responsible for yourself. So just own it. And it helps in the sense where whatever control you have over the world that we live in, that is absolutely no control. At the end of the day, you can say that for yourself. If stuff will still happen to you, good or for bad, and that's not really out of, that's out of anybody's control. At the very least, you can say for yourself, you've done your best to yourself. You've not continued putting yourself out there and being reckless and being dangerous and then turning around going, oh, why do I keep on getting hurt? Why do I, no, but then you're putting yourself in doing these things. So hopefully, yeah, more personal responsibility. It's very common reaction. Anything bad happened, we always first look outward to see who's responsible for. Who's to blame, right? Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the student part, Hong Kong hasn't quite completely opened and the education system has been quite severely affected. Mm. Like how you teach and how Mm. this generation of kids Mm. receive educations. Mm. And what has that been like for you in the last two and a half years. Really tiring. The worst part is that it sets this like 
precedence. Now, who knows what it'll be like in the years to come to finally say whether that's a good thing, bad thing. Precedence of having nearly an entire online teaching syllabus and curriculum, like it's possible, right? That we have for, I think Hong Kong, we had one of the longest period. The last time we were on online was the longest period we've had for online teaching. Well, for Hong Kong, at least. I feel like it sets a disturbing precedence, but who knows in the future, maybe students prefer being online. In all fairness, that's not true of all students. Some students, it really worked. It really worked. They were outside of the distraction of other people. It allowed them to focus on it. So that's a good thing too. What I'm afraid of is when there are going to be some people who say, you know what? We don't need a school. We can do everything online and provide everything online. And it's true. You can. That's not reason enough to completely replace a school a structure, an academic structure that comes from that. I already had seen during the pandemic time, years, like within that first year, it was Phoenix Channel and it was an advert for tuition, online tuition. And already it had advert upon advert of online tuition services. And that was only in the first year of pandemic. Now, to be fair, I'm sure it existed beforehand, but obviously ramped up a little bit more. And it's that sort of, yeah, it's easier, but I don't think that all teaching should. Your kid still needs to talk to other kids. Yeah. You don't want to have a complete hermit. I'm going to prove you more um, the online learning for the mm, kids mm. and the teenagers. Yeah. So what would be your worst nightmare if everything turned into online only? Kids not responding. Quite a lot of teachers will have the same experience already. You're lucky even if they had their cameras on, let alone being on. Like that's how bad it is, where I feel like I'm just talking to them. And I, now the thing is, I also get it from the student point of view, having the camera on, like it's a different type of uncomfortableness. And I get that. I get that where they feel much more self-conscious because the camera's always on them while in a classroom. My attention is only on them if they can see me. I'm looking at them, asking them a question. If I'm generally just talking about something, they can appreciate that. Oh, I'm in my learning environment, but I'm not being like on point with the teacher. And I get it how some students feel like with the camera on, I feel like I'm constantly being looked at, which technically I am because I'm looking at all the cameras and looking on the streets. So I get that. So defending the student's point of view of not having camera on, but for just for teachers, the students are on mute, the camera's not on, and I'm teaching a lesson. And it just makes me wonder like, fuck am I doing? It's like, eh, what's the point of it? This is not what I got into this for. Hilariously, this, what you've just asked, reminded me of a thing, Ian McKellen, how Ian McKellen walked off when they were filming Lord of the Rings, because there was one scene where everything was green screen and nobody acting, like no real physical person was there in see with him. And he said, the fuck am I doing? This is not what I go into acting for. I'm not meant to be green screening and doing this. And so it's a little bit like that and making that comparison of this is not, for me, this is not teaching. If you want to do that, then just go on YouTube, watch someone doing it. Like that's also just as good and no one, no hurt feelings, no nothing. But if you want to have a, a warm blooded person standing there and just spiel off stuff for half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever. And that's a lesson. No, that's the horror. That's the worst case scenario. Yeah. And from the student's perspective, what kind of negative effect you could see on them, like cognitively or psychologically or... Ooh. So everything is just online. Yeah. Easiest one, social skills. You're not talking to anybody. I'm already guilty of that where I'd much rather text someone than call someone. And then it's little things like that. So definitely it's more social skills. In terms of teaching, yeah, like hands-on practical aspects. 
of any teaching, whether it's science or maths or where is a physical aspect of it, that's lost. And for the kids, it's a generalization. I'm not going to say that all of this is bad. That's not true either. But you can't, and learning a thing, there's no, there's nothing in any rule book to say that learning new languages, learning maths or learning science has to be a social thing. That's not necessary. No, you could, if you want to learn something by yourself, you can. But as part of a school and as part of a community where there is teachers, there are students, there are people who work within the school and what that represents, and in a way, a tiny miniaturized version of society, then yeah, you've lost that. You've lost that interaction. You've lost for good and for bad, whether it's people working together, whether it's been bullying each other, no way they're saying that this community is perfect. You've lost that. And imagine how that affects a person where you have less interactions and thus let's say less experiences, life experiences, how to deal with good people, how to deal with bad people. This is hugely generalization. How do you deal with a bully? How do you work well as a group or not work well in a group? So imagine there's a part of your life where all those experiences you had at school no longer existed. How would that affect you as a person? You never had that bully in your life, but you also never had your best friend in your life from school. And how that would affect you as an adult? To have it online? Maybe you could have online bullying and online friendships. Yeah. Whether that's the same. Whether that's better or worse, I have no idea. I think human nature mm. is sociable. And also when we interact, we create memories of experiences. Mm -hmm. And as a teacher, what are your proudest moments? Maybe you share one. Ooh, that's a really difficult question. Not because God, that sounds true. There's been plenty of moments where I'm proud of my kids. I'm always proud of my kids. Okay. What are the when you I, oh. I like to think that I tell them. And it's funny because when I talk about my kids, I say, oh, no, my kids and everybody says, you're so young, you have children, isn't it? My, my students, I'm proud of them for different things. I'm proud of them, like of them being uh, adults. I'm proud of them taking responsibility. I'm proud of them doing well. And even, and when I went doing well, I don't mean, oh, they're getting A's or doing like in IB, we have NYP, so it's, it's numbers. Sometimes it's academic progress. Yes. Sometimes it's just seeing them and seeing them being like responsible and good people. I don't sound stupid, but yeah, I have many students where I am one of them that I'm proud of. I've taken care of him since he first joined the school. So he lost a parent when he was young. And so it was always very difficult. At the time he was only 11, 12, no one's going to respond well to the loss. And that's going to, that's for want of a better word, that's going to fuck you. And I'm proud of him. So I've seen him grow up and struggle. And I've struggled with him, trying to get him to be better, to work better. And the end of the day, and I recently met him and his father. And it's a very heartening moment to see them. They're just better. And they're not the confused, angry, stressed out, sad and crying child that you first met and they're now like more stable, more grounded, more centered. They still have their own things. Don't get me wrong. We're not saying that in the short space of time, suddenly they become like the perfect. At the same time, it's like, I'm not so worried now for and like, you know what? He's going to be better or for worse. Like the way to get to the end of your academic objective or whatever it is that you you achieve at the end of your time at school. There's more than one way to do it. I think we get too 
fixated on its high school, its university, it's a job, it's a, you know, that, that's, yeah, it's, we want the comfort of knowing how life is going to Yeah, they, it's a gigantic mess and we're all stumbling through it. And the illusion that we create as adults for children is the thing that we have an idea what the, what's going on. We don't. And they come to that realization as they muddle for some of them, they muddled through and, and figuring things out by themselves and then making it work. I think that's what I'm proud of. To see, you know, at the end of the day, as long as you're safe, you're happy with yourself. That's nice. If you were looking back on the last six years of your teaching career, what was the funniest moment? Oops. I'm sure plenty, but what would be the memorable? I remember once we had a rabbi coming in. Oh God, I know with it. This isn't, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, too late. I've started now, so I have to finish. Yeah. A rabbi coming in talking about dinosaurs and saying how like they were more recent than they really are. And what happened is this was during a time it was funny because juxtaposed to that, him giving this sort of like a talk to the assembly, this was during a time called Purim. And in Purim is like, for want of a better word, it's, it's Jewish Halloween. It's the way everybody was in a costume. And I was in my inflatable dinosaur costume in the background as he's saying my dinosaurs were like a fairly recent thing. And it's me going in the background. I don't know. I'm not going to say anything. So that was funny. I'm curious to, to see or hear from your past students. Did they hear this episode? They are probably thinking, God, Mr. Mark swears so much. Yeah. Is it a company of friends? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, but then, yeah, whatever a small amount of respect I have from my kids, they kind of be like, yeah, oh God, Mr. Mark swears worse than most people. Or worse, yeah, the other teachers, like, yeah, let's not employ him. Yeah. I'm not comfortable with it. Yeah, but he's, they see the other side of it. I, it, personally speaking, being a teacher is very much like a role playing. You are a character. You present his best foot forward. But you're presenting to the student, to young people, this is more or less what an adult is going to be like. Now, depending on how well you present that, then sure, response, punctual, fair. Sometimes that can drop a little bit. The last two years of pandemic, I guarantee you, I've not been like on time for a lot. But you're pre like, it's, it's, you're presenting a persona of yourself and how people can behave. And hopefully they take the best things from that, not the worst things. So, okay. So let me ask you a question okay. as my okay. guest. Okay. First question, diving related. In diving, we have wet bag and dry bag. So in your dry bag, what are the three items that you would almost always carry? Boring stuff. Surely the phone keys and the towel. Make it exciting. Oh, a sword, a, because yeah, if you said that I was in a desert island, I would a dry bag, then I'll probably, yeah, a knife and flint stick, something that like, or no, actually might as well, if I'm going to ask for a lighter, I don't know why I'm asking for a flint stick. But if you ended up in a desert island, what would be the three items that you would put in your dry bag? So yeah, I'm definitely a knife, definitely a lighter. Definitely. What the third thing? So as you can see, this is a very utilitarian and like usefulness, like survival mode. What can I, like. Many choices. Like a book. If pretending on a desert island, maybe, maybe uh, my favorite book. You give me some idea about new questions that I can ask them for my future episode. Okay. The next question, still diving related. What are the three top tips that you would give on safe diving practice? Ooh. So usual stuff, I guess, always check your gear, always check your O-ring, weight belts, but then that's not really safe practice. It's more like I'm just a very fat person. I know it doesn't look it, 
but I needed so many weight. I don't know whether I just like more fat or more bone or whatever it is. I need a lot to keep me down. The funny, this is not a safety thing. It's just like a fun story. Don't keep anything in your BCD when you inflate it, because that's how I broke my GoPro because I had taken it up, put it in there. And then it's like, what's that sound? It's like, oh, fuck. So that's more like a funny story that always empty out the pockets of your BCD before you inflate. There, That's more out of personal pain, more than safety. I'm sure there are probably more important stuff, but yeah, the, I don't worry about the O-ring one. I think that's the one that really stuck with me, like sand and stuff. Is the O-ring still intact or is it all drying in? Because yeah, I think that's, it's in my mind. I want to rely on this because that's where you can access air. Exactly. Right. It's so in my mind, it's the thing that for, as you can see, that really stuck in of like, always check your O-ring because like I said, it's ceiling, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so like that for me is the, probably the most important thing that I would. In the, um, the BCD, the inflating. Yeah. It would yeah. always inflate on the surface. Yes, that's true. And make sure there's nothing in your pocket. So pissed off with myself for that. A third one? I don't know. I guess check your air. I know that, again, it sounds silly, but every once in a while. And for me, I think that's also, I guess, an analogy for life. Every once in a while, just check in. Like, where are you at? It's practical, isn't Because we're going down there, we may be down for 30 mm, minutes. Mm, mm. We may be down there for an hour, but it's all depending on. on as yeah, you know, as much as you enjoy time. yourself, everyone as well, check your air. I think that's good sound advice. I may know the answer for the next one, but I'll ask you anyway. What is your greatest fear? Oh, yes, we had this conversation. I don't know. And when I was younger, I would probably say parenthood. But now that after teaching for so long, it doesn't matter. Whatever you think is going to be the thing you screw up, being a parent, it's not going to be the thing that you screw up as a parent. So when you say my greatest fear, I think my greatest fear is dealing with a situation that I don't know how to deal with. I think dealing with it as much as we do the climbing and the diving and the night reparation, there's always going to be something that you can't and you have to adapt. So I don't think that's, you would have thought I prepared for this more. I think you heard the script. I know you didn't hear the script. But <laughs> Can I say you don't have a Oh no, I do have a fear. Oh, you do? Okay. But I, have it's I have a fear of forgetting things. I think that is the thing that would probably affect me the most if I realized that I was forgetting. If I was aware that I had forgotten people, forgotten things that are important. I think that's what scares me. Why is that? Because it loses meaning. It loses importance. If you can't remember a thing. And especially if it's a very personal memory, in a way, it, that's quite scary. Imagine you forgetting a thing and it, like in a way in itself, it didn't, and hopefully by the end of today, I'll forget that. That's my fear and I'll be fine. So the next question, what's your greatest extravagance? Ooh, greatest extravagance. It used to be my versus Patagonia, then it was North. Face. It was a very thin windbreaker that was also waterproof because usually waterproof windbreakers are thick. So this was designed for, and it had zippers on, and you're on the armpits so that when you're tra trail running, it's easier. That was one of my biggest extravagance out of all of my clothes that I owned. It was the most expensive one. And I was really sad when I was running in Keswick, so like Midlands in England, and I was trail running around the hills. And I was like, oh, doing really well. And I tripped it. <laughs> and we like ate it and scraped it up. And it was like, it was just one hole. 
And I didn't think it would affect me that much, but I got really upset by it. It's just looking back, it's fucking stupid to be like, nowadays you can just buy like tape and repair it. And I've done that for all the stuff that I've repaired. Surprisingly, me falling and eating the floor is a constant thing that I do. You would have thought I'd get my inner ear checked by now. And since then, I've bought another one that's also like very thin, windbreaker, waterproof. And that I've also torn, although that story was more hilarious. I was trying to go for a piss and I fell. It was even more stupid at least. And I managed to repair that. It's all good. Okay. That was my biggest experience. Okay. The next question. What do you value most in your friends? What do I value most? Being helpful. A, a willingness to like, to go out on a limb for people. Honesty, not so much. Because I'm not saying that I want people to lie to me. No. The idea that we are going to be 100% honest to each other is a fallacy. It's like people being good or bad. It's yeah, we're older now. Like it's honesty is it just depends on what you say and how much you decide to share a war on. I feel like being able to help each other is a higher thing. Treasure. And whether it's people that work with, whether it's you guys. Yeah. I think, and we were always like that. I think we were always there for each other for different things, for different reasons. And that's the thing. Sure. Bunch of idiots like us and all hanging around and having fun. But at the end of the day, if we needed anything, we got each other's. I think having that, knowing that for all the crazy stuff we all did, we trusted each other's lives. Riptide aside, we trusted in each other to, to when you're climbing, diving, you being opponents for each other. So yeah, having each other's backs, helping each other. That's the thing I treasure the most. There are lots of things together, <clears throat> volunteering stuff and fun stuff, crazy stuff. So if you were to recount, how many crazy how, how many times we nearly died? Okay, okay. Going. just count one, we count one. But then there was the like, dangerous times when I'm climbing, but then that's more on me, okay. more than us as a group. The first bolt is five meters up. The next bolt is another five meters up. You're like. Huh, if I don't make that second bolt, I'm going to land on the ground. That was that for me. But then as a group, yeah, probably South Heaven's Gate hike. You're climbing up a dry waterfall. Poor Jason was stuck. He couldn't go up, couldn't go down. All the time, I think Ian was with us, other Ian, and it was a very heavily loose rock type of slope and a rock the size of somebody's head was rolling down. We all had to dodge at the last minute. There was that. And then we got all the way to the top. And it was, oh, we just need to walk around this jutting out bit of rock on this trail. But yeah, it was wide enough that people would walk past, but if you fall, you're going to die. There's nothing else. So that, that was probably the most dangerous thing that I recall all of us doing together. No one got no. injured and you trusted each other to be able to lend a hand. Yes. Yeah. To know that if anything happened, like everybody else had each other's back. Okay. Last question. Mm. So if you were the host of this podcast, we swap seat and I'm being interviewed by you. What question would you have for me to answer? Probably more sciencey. And I know that sounds really stupid. What is your favorite sort of a marine animal that you've enjoyed as a scuba diver? I know you like photography. So what is the thing that you like to photograph most? Okay. And let's say, let's go for something big and something small because that'll make it a little bit easier. I think the small thing when I go diving. Hmm. I would always look for frogfish. That is, I, I, to me, frogfish are like the Pokemon of the sea because there's, there's so many different ones. There's so many different colors, they, but they're all like the same, but different. They were so weird. Yes. So strange. And yet they're so cute. And they'll miss it because they always just perch mm. on the rock. 
or perch on somewhere the sand mm. next to a branch, mm-hmm. pretending mm-hmm. to be a leaf. Yep. Yeah. And it's quite satisfying when I see one. And especially when you spot it, right? Yeah. And so that's the one spotted it. It's yeah. really satisfying. The other one I always feel happy to see is at all. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite universal. Something very peaceful about it. Yeah. Something about turtle, when I see them, I feel happy. Mm-hmm. And I've also found when I talk to other divers, we share the same thing. It's just something about turtle that you really happy. Mm-hmm. And, and the biggest underwater creature I've actually encountered, I think, is whale sharks. We were like chasing whale sharks underwater and I actually chased one down to four meter and then swam really hard, like kicking really hard to keep up with it. And while that little dopey looking gentle child, yeah, yeah. just that teeny sway of the tail, it's ready to move in. Eh? Wow. Yeah, exactly. If I have a choice not to take the camera down, I would just to enjoy the underwater. I'm actually particularly jealous. I'd love, like a personally a thing would be to whale sharks or whales, like Anything that big, I'd love to be able to be diving in to see in its natural habitat. You have been listening to Surface Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Johnny Ma, a lifelong learner and a teacher. If you happen to be one of his students and find that he swears a lot, just put it down as your privilege of getting to see the fuller version of Johnny, which only shows up when he is in a comfortable and non-judgmental company. You may find him even more relatable. Joking aside, I really love when Johnny highlighted that rock climbing and continued doing it has been a positive and profound life experience for him. I could relate to that both in rock climbing and scuba diving. Even though between the two, I would always pick scuba diving first. Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and Music by Dress Studio. 